So, you know, one of the great things about ordering things online is you can get all these weird items that never are going to be on the store shelves, but you can get them to your location in a matter of a couple of days. And you have, you have people from around the world who can set up little shops and send out these unusual items. The downside of all of the online shopping is you don't know exactly what you're going to get until it arrives. And so I had in mind this big scale that was going to come <laughs> and that I could use to show you all uh, this analogy. And, uh, and so it ordered, I ordered it and I was like, it'll be in by Friday. It's like, oh, great. From around the world by Friday. Great. And then it arrives in this little bitty box. I was like, oh, this is, this is probably not going to be good, but it's, it's going to work fine. Pretend that you are seeing a big scale and uh, we'll all be fine. It also came with weights, uh, which is exciting. Again, I had this grand picture in mind until I, I pull it out, and this is the biggest one. It's like, okay, great. <laughs> great. So here's the idea of a scale. We're going to use this to kind of set up the analogy, so we'll just, we're going to go with it even though it's, it's small. So if you have this scale in life and you're, you're trying to balance things out, you've got, to, you've got to find ways to say, what's worth spending time on? Like, like if I do one thing, is that going to make it enough? Which one's more important? If I add a little extra over here, it adds more. If I put a little extra over here, it's less. You're constantly weighing things out to try to see what's worth doing. What's worth spending my time on? What's worth spending my money on? What's worth spending my life on, right? I mean, life is constantly this scale where you're balancing out what really matters and what's really worth it. And you make all kinds of decisions that way. And we do it so often, we don't even realize when we do it that we're weighing things out on a scale. It reminds me of a, of a silly little phrase I heard, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. Some of you may have heard this phrase. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's that nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. Anybody ever heard that phrase? I want to tell you that. If you've never heard it before, that's a lie. That's a complete lie. Um, I can think of hundreds of things that taste better than skinny feels, right? That's just not, that's not true at all. Apparently, I did some research on this. Apparently, the British model Kate Moss was the one who coined that phrase originally, and I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Kate Moss. I was going to put a picture up on the screen of her, but I couldn't find one where she was adequately clothed to put it up on the screen in church for Sunday. And, and, but I'm pretty sure uh, Kate, I have a better perspective than Kate does. Uh, because I've been skinny when I was younger. I'm not currently skinny, but I've been skinny. And so I've seen both sides of this debate. Kate's only seen skinny. She doesn't know what, what this feels like. And so I don't think she has quite the perspective that I do. And so I just want to tell Kate that, that her little phrase it turns out to be a lie. Because pie tastes better than skinny feels. I guarantee you that. Cake tastes better than skinny feels. Biscuits certainly taste better than skinny feels. In fact, I can't think of a single thing at our local Mexican restaurant that doesn't taste better than skinny feels. So I thought, I want to be a help to Kate. You know, maybe she's watching. Welcome, Kate, if you're watching. I, I want to be a help to her. I don't want to be judgmental or ugly. Uh, she just doesn't maybe fully understand all the options. And so I thought, let me help her alter her statement just a little bit. She could have said something like this. Most things taste as good as skinny feels. That's true, right? Or kale doesn't taste as good as skinny feels. That's 100% the truth. In fact, skinny feels much better than kale tastes. That's also true. Um, but nothing feel, tastes as good as skinny feels. That's just, that's just not true. That's false. But I think that, that phrase, that, that debate, and I think this scale is a picture of how we make decisions, isn't it? We weigh out things on a scale, and we try to decide, is, is this something I'm going to do, or is this not something I'm going to do? Is this something I'm going to be part of or not going to be part of? Is this, is this worth it? You know, is this piece of pie worth, 
what I'm trying to do on my health decisions? Or should I get a glass of sweet tea or unsweet tea? Or maybe I'll split the middle and do half and half, you know, trying to balance that out a little bit. Hey, by the way, has anybody ever ordered half and half tea and they give you that crazy tea lemonade combination? Like, good gracious, that is not what I'm talking about. So I have to say the whole thing. Or should I get the loaded baked potato as my side or should I get the broccoli? as my? Like, these are all decisions you've got to weigh out. And all those are pretty silly choices, really. I mean, that's not that big a deal. Uh, get the sweet tea. I don't care. That's fine. I, but I think we make more consequential decisions as well. Things like, should we purchase this as a family? Or should we wait on that? Or should we maybe not do it at all? That's a decision you, you make. You've got to kind of balance that out. Or, or should we let our kids sign up for that one more activity? Or is that going to put our family in a bind a bit? And we're going to, have to make that decision, and there's downsides to both. It's not an easy choice. Or should I, do I build my life on the ways of Jesus, or do I go a different direction? I mean, culture kind of goes a different direction. Maybe I, maybe I should go along with what a lot of my friends are doing or whatever. All of life is a balance. All of life is a balance. And we decide priorities of which is most important, not always between good things and bad things. Those are easy choices. But we decide which is more important between good things and better things. Which is most important? Because sometimes good things stand in the way of that which is most important. And we have the best things shoved to the side because of too many good things that get in the way. I think it's a great temptation in our day to think I can just add one more thing and one more thing and one more thing and one more thing. And we get so busy running around after all of these things that we lose sight of what really matters. What really matters the most. I right, put a pause on that just a minute. Let me, let me show you how, how unique our spot in history is. Because I think this may be a little bit, there won't be any new facts on the screen, but I think when you add it all together, it's, it's pretty significant. So in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell receives patent for the telephone. Okay, that's a key, that's the starting point of this conversation. 1879, Thomas Edison invents the light bulb, which allows us to stay up as late as we want. 1886, Carl Benz patents the first automobile, giving people access to travel. 1903, the Wright brothers take their first flight, which expands it even more. 1971, Ray Tomlinson sends the first email. I hate that guy, by the way. Um, I didn't know his name until this week, uh, but I'm not a fan of email which therefore means I'm not a fan of old Ray. Uh, thanks a lot, Ray. Appreciate that. 1971. 1973, Motorola engineer makes the first cell phone call. And in 2007, Steve Jobs presents the iPhone. And we could go on and on and on. Imagine how differently your life would be lived had you lived prior to 1876. I mean, just take a glance at that. Prior to 1876, when the sun went down, your day was over. No light bulbs, no travel. Prior to 1876, unless you were extremely wealthy, you likely would never travel outside of your hometown, or certainly not the home region of your, that you grew up in. Prior to 1876, you were only able to interact with people standing near you. No one texted, no one called, no one emailed. Thanks a lot, Ray. No one did any of that. There was no social media. I mean, you could send a letter and get something back by Pony Express in a couple of months, but you only interact, I mean, consider that. Prior to 1876, you were only responsible for people standing near you. You were only really communicating with people standing near you. But it's different today. And it causes us to run around after lots of things. And in the process of adding one more, one more, one more, one more, we, we lose sight of the bigger things in our life that matter the most. How much easier 
must it have been to balance out the scales prior to 1876, let alone to the Bible times? I mean, there's a lot of things between the Bible times and 1876 that sped life up a bit. How much different would that have been? And yet, listen to the words of Jesus addressing this exact topic. Matthew 6, 31 says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Pagans, people who do not know God, run around after all these things. But Jesus says, Your heavenly Father knows you need them. So instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Act differently than the rest of the world does, Jesus says, because you do know God. Like, your knowledge of God, your relationship with God should impact the way you choose to run around after all these things. It just should. I mean, people in Jesus' day were tempted to run after all these things, just like we are today, but they didn't have light bulbs, they didn't have automobiles or smartphones, and they were still tempted to run around after all these things. Is it any wonder, I mean, we should give ourselves a break, is it any wonder we're tempted today to run around after all these things if they were tempted then without all the conveniences we have? I love the message translation here. I'm going to read it slowly because you can't read a verse like this fast, right? That's the point. Matthew 6, 31 says, If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never, ever even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you and take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over all these things, but you know both God and how he works, So steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Do not worry about missing out. You'll find your everyday human concerns will be met. I highlighted, don't worry about missing out. Let me say it to you again, because I think maybe this, we need to hear that. Do not worry about missing out. I think one of the greatest obstacles to faith today is not worship of Satan. One of the greatest obstacles to worship today is a fear of missing out. It was clearly a problem before 1876, but I think it's certainly gotten worse today. Jesus says, don't worry about missing out. Another famous passage. They're all over the Bible. Jesus interacting with Mary and Martha. He'd gone to their house, and, and Mary's there listening to him teach while Martha's busy with all of this stuff in the kitchen. Now, by the way, Jesus was going to eat later from those things that Martha was working on. So, It wasn't like he's opposed to that. Everybody likes a good casserole or something, whatever she was doing. But Jesus was saying uh, to to Mary and the others, he was teaching, and Martha was in there busying herself, and she gets exasperated, like we do when we feel like we're working and other people are not. And she comes and demands of Jesus, will you make her get up and help me? And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, indeed only one, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha was worried and upset about many things, and she didn't even have social media to tell her all the things she should be worried about. I mean, can you picture Martha on iHeart Spring Hill? Like, that takes, that's in the message translation, by the way. Martha on iHeart Spring Hill. That's in there if you look at it. I mean, our technology is new, but our temptation to worry, our temptation to run after these things, our temptation to worry about missing out, that's age old. 
That temptation, there's nothing new to that temptation. There's nothing new, Scripture says, under the sun. That core level temptation is age old. Just technology has made it worse. Technology has made it worse. We've been in a series called, uh, it's ending today, called Hangry, uh, where we're looking at habits that God designed us to live just in the regular flow of our lives. And these habits, if they're not implemented, they won't disable you. I mean, most people today, don't give them a second thought, most of our culture today doesn't live by these things that you're doing, and they're going on about their life. They have lives and families and, and kids, and they'll be shopping today and taking kids around, doing things. But if you don't do them, it won't disable you, but it will affect you. Unmistakably, it will affect you. And it will affect those around you greatly, and it will affect the relationships that you're trying to enjoy greatly. It will make you hangry. Now, I, I want to say to you, because this is, this is real important, uh, especially if you don't know me well, or if you maybe are a little skeptical of church or whatever, um, I'm, my goal today is to convince you to do a few things. I want to lay that out. I'm not trying to be hidden about that. It's not for anything gained for me. Most salespeople are trying to sell you something so they get a commission. I'm not trying to, I don't get anything from this. I just want to help you out. So I'm going to try to convince you to implement what we've talked about in this series. The Bible says, don't just listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This series has told us a lot of things to do or not do. I'm going to try to convince you to actually do that. But I'm not going to put a hard sell on it. I don't think that's helpful. I think when you stop and really consider it, kind of in a dispassionate way, when you put it on the scale, I think the choice is pretty clear. So I am going to try to convince you, but I'm not going to try to make you emotional. I'm not going to try to stir up your... I'm just going to try to lay it out for you to consider. I mean, what would, what would our life look like if we lived this way? What would it look like if we had regular times of worship? Not just a few minutes, a time or two a month, um, when we got to church, but if we took moments every day to honor God, remember God. I mean, just a minute ago, we sang as a group to God, you won't fail, you've never failed. And I, I, I don't know if you realize this or not, I don't, like sometimes I go to churches and the pastor comes from in the back and he's hiding back there somewhere. I, I, I don't, I'm out, I'm just right down here, in this seat right here. And during that time with God, while I was singing those words to God, it hit me how weird this is. Have you ever thought about that, how weird worship is? We just said as a group to God, you won't fail. You've never failed. People all over our city are saying these kinds of words to God right now. People all over the state, all over the country, all over the world are singing out together to God in unison, God, you won't fail, you've never failed, or things like that. I want you to picture when you go to work in the morning, the CEO of your company calling you all together to have you sing in unison to him or her, you've never failed, you never will, you won't fail. Can you imagine that? Or like if, if, if a presidential candidate from any time in her lifetime, I'm not making a political statement, would encourage the political rally to sing together in unison to them something along the lines of, you've never failed and you won't. Or if your family... When you walk in the door after work on Monday, we'd all come together, mother, father, you've never failed and you won't. Now, my family does that, but most families don't do that. That's weird for most families to do that, right? And yet we do it to God with a straight face because we know it's true. He's in a wholly unique category. 
And there's something about life, when you're going through life with all of its trials and temptations of people who do fail all the time, to step back and say, God, but you never fail and you won't. What would that look like if we took some time to to worship God? What would it look like if if studying the Bible was a significant priority that we built our life around? You know, knowledge of God's word grows over time. So don't regret what you don't know. Every time I talk to someone about studying the Bible, they say, well, man, I wish I'd have started this. Okay, you can't change that. Don't regret what you've not done. Start now. A friend of mine always says, you know the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. Second best time to plant a tree is today. Start studying the Bible. Like, make that a priority. What would that do to your life? What if Sabbath was the norm? Every week, a day to rest, a day to reflect on God, to have downtime with those we love. What if that wasn't the exception, or just when the power went out or something, but that was the norm? Have you ever noticed how, like, when the power goes out, we all get online the next day and say, man, that was awesome to have a couple hours of just, well, do that. Stop it. Shut the power off. I don't care. Do, figure something out. What if we took smaller moments of Sabbath to intentionally rest and reflect on God and have downtime with those we love? What if Sabbath was a way of life and not an exception? What if we understood the power of words? Not just, not just to help others, but what those words, expressing those words, what they do to us. And we use them to encourage people in our life. And we use them to encourage people in our home. And we use them to tell people about Jesus and share our faith, our confident trust in God. Like some people to, tomorrow are going through life and they've not sang today, you won't fail, you never have. But you've sang that today and you know that today and you can give them your confident hope that they don't have. What would happen if you used your words like that? And what would those sharing of your faith do in your own soul? What would it do to your anger if God was using you as a conduit to use your words? What if together we lived a life of generosity and we battled consistently, because there's a battle going on, to to be the urge to be self-centered? I mean, how many marketing dollars are designed to make you self-centered? If you're not battling that, you're going to lose. Like, what if we lived our life with enough margin that we could freely give, not just of money, but of time, of energy? We weren't zapped out at the end of every single day. So we're just binging whatever's on? Like what if we chose intentionally as a group to live on less? What would, what would this life look like? Can you even picture that? Like what if a group, just like this group, chose to live this way? There's been a lot of talk in the news. Uh, you've probably heard it about what's going on in Asbury, which I think is cool. Started with 15 students who said we're going to do something different. What if this group decided to do something different? We had national news based on 15 students in, in Louisville lead, or in Kentucky leading the way for us. What if 200 of us, 300 of us said we're going to live differently? To help me frame that, because I think you've got to, I'm not going to make a hard sale. You just got to, is, is that worth it on the scale? So let me, to frame that, let me ask you two questions. Number one, if you really thought these things were right, and I believe they are, you've got to decide that for yourself, could you do it? Not do you want to do it, not would it be easy to do it. I'm just saying, is it possible? If you said, I want to live that way, I want to implement worship and Bible study and Sabbath and, and, and using my words and, the, and generosity, I want to do that, could I possibly do it? And question number two, if you did it, would your life improve? Because if we could do it, and our life would be better if we did do it, then what's stopping us? Again, I'm not making a hard sale today. I'm just saying, put it on the balance. 
What, what would have to change? What would have to go away? What would, what, would, what would have to come away to make that work? Like what, what have you added to your life or taken away from your life that would keep you from doing that? And is it worth it? Because then you have to ask. You know, Jesus said when somebody's building a tower, they, they measure it out. They don't be a foolish. So what would have to change? What would have to go? What would it cost you? Not just in terms of money, but in terms of time. What would that cost you? You couldn't do some of the things you're doing now, likely. I believe, A, we can do it. And I believe, B, if we did it, our lives would improve. I think we'd be less hangry. I think our relationships would get better. I think our emotions would be better. I think our spiritual dynamics would be better. I think physically we would feel better. So the real question is, when are we going to start? Hang on to that just a second. Let me come from a different angle. Grab your Bible out. Turn to Galatians 5 with me, if you will. Page 798 in these Bibles here. Galatians 5, page 798. I want to look at a familiar section that you may have heard before. And then on either side of it is an unfamiliar section that mostly doesn't get taught. We're going to look at all three of them. Galatians 5, page 798. I, I want us to, if you have these Bibles, take one of those if you don't have one. We'd love to help you study the Bible by taking one of these. Take it. It'd be great. Galatians 5, look at verse 22 to start with. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit of God. So God's, when God's in you, the fruit that comes out of your life, the results of God working in your life is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, this is what you, your life would look like if you were allowing God to uninhibited grow his fruit in you. And we all have sin, so we, none of us are going to get that 100%, but if you allowed God to have more and more control of your life, you'd get more and more of these things. If you gave him authority over your time, over your attention, over your focus, everything. And I want you to notice, look at the list. That's a, that's a good life. A life filled with love, a life filled with kindness, a life filled with joy and peace, that's a good life. That's a, that's a pretty compelling result. If you're going to put something on one side of the scale, even if you're just self-centered, if I let God have full access to my time, my schedule, my energy, my focus, my, I'm going to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's a pretty, it's a pretty compelling result of, of the study. Um, I think it is. So I want you to notice that verse, it's good life. Second, I want you to notice uh, these verses aren't well known, the ones I'm getting ready to talk about, but I want you to glance up at the verses right before that. Verses 19 to 21. This is the introduction to what we just read. Normally people don't read these. It says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 22, and, and so what he's doing is he's creating a compare and contrast. So if you follow your own selfish urges and desires, you get the first list. If you let God be in control of your urges and desires, you get the second list. But I want you to notice, these are not direct opposites. It's not like love on one side, hate on the other, gentleness on one side, rage on the other, uh, good and evil. It's not how this works. Do you notice that? 
You can let God lead your life and get things like love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, gentleness, self-control. You can get that list if you let God lead your life. Or you can follow your own urges and your own desires, be in charge of your own life. And those verses say that when we do that, human nature, we all follow the same steps and we arrive at the same places. So look at the list. We're going to be drawn to things like sexually immoral things. Look at our culture. We become more and more sexually immoral. I, I have missionary friends, and, and they consistently say, they'll, they'll come home for a visit, and they'll go to their country for four or five years, whatever, and they'll come home for a visit. And I say, what, what do you notice when you come home? And almost always, the, the top answer is how much more sexual our culture has become in the four or five years we've been going. Again and again and again and again and again. It's right here in Galatians 5. We're going to be drawn to idolize things. It says idolatry. One, right there at the top. Look at our culture. We're going to be drawn to hatred, discord, fits of rage, selfish ambition. Look at our culture. Our culture is going away from God. In Galatians, in Galatians, Paul says, if you do that as a country, as a culture, as an individual, here's the kind of things your life's going to be filled with. 19 to 21. Or you can let God lead your life. You get 22 and 23. But we have a choice. Look at verse 24. It said, those who belong to Christ Jesus have chosen to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So that, that's kind of a one-time thing. You've, you've made a commitment to Christ. You said, be my Lord. You're in charge, not me. You've said, forgive me of my sins. Uh, you know, baptism is a great picture of saying, I want to be immersed in the ways of God. You're in charge now. So you've crucified your, those desires in the flesh. And then verse 25 is the ongoing. Since we live by the Spirit, so God's Spirit comes to live inside you and now he's in charge. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, so walk as he walks. If he's faster than you, speed up. If he's slower than slow down. If he goes left or right, you go left or right. Keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. I think conceited means, in this context... Let us not think we can just do it on our own. Keep in step with the Spirit. Don't just pick and choose what you're going to follow. Keep in step with the Spirit. Earlier in the message, we considered several key inventions. And they're amazing. I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-inventions. None of that. It's an amazing list, obviously beneficial. We would look at that list and we'd say, man, our life is so much better because of that list, and it really is. But that's not how people saw it in the times those things were being created. I mean, you can fall down a rabbit hole online and spend hours finding quotes and things. Let me give you just a couple of pictures of that. There's a guy named Alexander Winton. He was one of the first auto manufacturers in America. He was a bicycle maker who saw the future and said, man, I think if we could automate the bicycle so they don't have to keep pedaling, that would that'd be awesome. And so years later, in 1930, he writes an article for the Saturday Evening Post talking about his inventing days as one of the first auto manufacturers in America. I want you to look at his words, but I also want you to notice the resistance that he felt from changing from horse and buggy, which everybody knew was the best way to do life, to the automobile. Winton says, things are very different today. 
But in the 90s, and that's the 1890s, not the 19, don't, don't get confused. In the 90s, even though I had a successful bicycle business and was building my first car in the privacy of the cellar of my home, I began to be pointed out as the fool who's riddling with a buggy that will run without being hitched to a horse. My banker even called me to say, Winton, I'm disappointed in you. That riled me, he said, but I held my tempers. I asked him, what's the matter with you? And he bellowed, there's nothing the matter with me, it's you. You're crazy if you think that fool contraption you've been wasting your time on will ever displace the horse. That is so hard to read for us today. Because we know how much better the car is than the horse and buggy. But their perspective, from their perspective, it's unimaginable. I mean, everybody knows that traveling by horse and buggy is just the way that we all do it. And that's a better way to live than traveling by some newfangled car thing. Everybody knows it. No one had any doubts. You were the fool if you went a different direction. They just couldn't imagine life a different way. Because everybody knows what's best. Fast forward, 1985. The New York Times published an article that declared emphatically that the days of the portable computer, the laptop, are going away. How many of you have a laptop that you use at work? How many of you have a a smaller computer that you take with you everywhere in your life? Okay. I quote the New York Times, the limitations come from what people actually do with computers as opposed to what the marketers expect them to do. On the whole, people don't want to lug a computer with them to the beach or on a train to while away hours. They would rather spend reading the sports or business section of the paper newspaper. Somehow, the microcomputer industry has assumed that everyone would love to have a keyboard grafted on as an extension of their fingers. It's just not so. Really? (laughs) Really? I mean, everybody knew. Everybody knew. There's no doubt. It's it's that people don't want to be connected all the time digitally. Outside of the office. I mean, everyone knows that. That'll never fly. That's not a way we're going to go as a culture. They just couldn't imagine life a different way because they were so set in their mindset. Is it possible that all these inventions have escalated our lives to the point that a correction is coming? I say maybe a correction or a crash is already here. I mean, look at the reports about mental health in our country. Is it possible that we're right in the middle of a crash that sociologists have been declaring was coming for a long time? And is it possible... That heaven looks down with the same amount of disbelief that we do towards the car or the portable microcomputer. That heaven looks down and just in disbelief and shock. And why are they choosing to live this way when there's an alternative that's so much better? I mean, our culture just can't imagine taking a day off. They can imagine not working at work, but then they come home and work at home. They just can't imagine taking a day to not work. Our culture can't imagine intentionally choosing to give worship to God, the only one who has never failed and won't. Our culture can't imagine using our words to build up instead of divide. That's not how we do things in America. Our culture can't imagine living on less so we can have extra to give away. Our culture can't imagine seeing the Bible not as an outdated book, but as words to live our life upon. But God knows all along, has known all along, how to make a life flourish, how to make a family flourish, how to make a nation and culture flourish. 
And God says, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And that's what I'm going to challenge you to do today. You know, when I first started out in ministry, I was, um, I was wrong on a lot of things, you know? A lot of us do that. I think we look back, and, and I think I really had in mind, I would have never said it because it sounds terrible, I really had in my mind that church is for good people, and people outside of church need to become good people like church people. I think I, I, think I probably thought that. I wouldn't have said it for sure. That sounds tacky even to say it here. But I think that was, that was probably how I started ministry. And then quickly I thought, okay, that's crazy. That's just not true. Um, a, there's a lot of really good people who do really good things outside of church. And there's a lot of people inside of church who are not so great when you get to know them, right? <laughs> None of you folks, of course. <laughs> um, but that's, that's true, right? I mean, I look in the mirror. I see somebody who's not always such a great guy. So it changed. And so I really wanted to, I still was really eager to get people who are disconnected from God connected to him because I knew that we're all going to stand before our creator. And every one of us is going to stand before a creator. And we can either take our own mess with all of our faults and failings and sin and stand before a holy, righteous God and just let the chips fall where they may, or we can have God come along through the person of Jesus and say, I forgave him for all of that, Father. He's with me. And so I'm really motivated for all of my friends outside of Christ to say, I want to help you find the Lord who loves you because he loves you. And, and one day you're going to stand before him and I, I don't want you to be unaware of what's coming. And so I've always had a passion about that. But these days I'm going into like a third phase, I think, of ministry where all of that's still true, but I'm looking at life today and I'm looking around today and I'm seeing so many people have relational struggles and emotional struggles and personal struggles and they blame all kinds of things but it's because God's not in the center of their life. I see people in the church who, who have committed to Christ but are not walking in the step with the Spirit who have all those same things. And so all of that judgment about later's coming, you are going to stand before God and you're going to have to account either why you accepted Christ or didn't and if you didn't, why you did all the things that you did because they're still unforgiven if you stand before God without him. So I'm still very passionate about that, but on top of that, I'm saying, man, why do you wait? Because if you would live life the way God directs you to live, so many things change and get better. Because he knows how to make a life flourish. He knows how to make a people flourish. He knows how to make a family flourish. And so I want to say to you today, with all the humility I can muster, because I no longer think that I'm any way better than anybody else, I know me. With all the humility I can muster, I want to say, if you don't know Jesus and you've never given your life to him, then one day you will stand before him and have to give account for all your own stuff. And I don't want to do that with all my own stuff. And I don't want you to do that with all your own stuff because I know how much stuff I got. And I assume it's how much stuff you got. And we're not good enough on our own. I'm certainly not. So if you've never given your life to Christ... When's there going to be a better day to weigh it out? And if you have crucified your desires, Galatians 5, but honestly, you're not living in step with the Spirit, when are you going to start that? And 
why wouldn't it make sense that that day today be today? Why don't you bow your head? God, I want to ask, beg, honestly, for every one of us, for those who have never given their lives to you, for those who, who have maybe years ago but are not living like it at all right now, that they would repent today and turn to you and put you at the centerpiece of their life. God, for those of us who've, who have crucified our, our desires in the flesh, we've committed our life to you, we've, we've asked you to get forgiveness, we've been baptized, but God, we're, we're living our life not in step with your spirit. I pray that today would be a day for us that we change. And God, for all of us, both of those categories, and even those who are living in step well with the Spirit, and all of us, God, together, would you give us even greater passion in ultimate humility for every one of our friends and family who don't know you and are trying so desperately to figure this complicated world out without you. You won't fail. And we declare that to be true. And I pray for my friends that we would follow you even more fully today. I pray in Jesus' name.